You guys remember a commercial? Uh, I think it was from Monster.com. When I grow up, I want to be a yes man. Another kid comes up. When I grow up, I want to be middle management. Another one says, when I grow up, I want to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. You remember this one? I, maybe 10 years ago or so. I love that commercial. I never realized until recently the biblical wisdom found in that commercial. Now, how many of us are brought up and they say, you know, your parents say, son, daughter, when, when you grow up, I want you to be a yes man and, and sit in middle management. I want you to be overlooked by everybody. I don't want your work to be recognized. And I just want you to, to settle for mediocrity and be forgotten about by the world. You know, your kids often, you ever tell your kids that or you ever told that as a, as a parent? You tell them, I want you to work hard and be recognized. And if you go into the corporate world, you work hard and you work your way up to the, cor- up the corporate ladder and, and you get as far as you can and as high as you can and you make as much as you can. And you, you, you have people recognize you and basically what they're telling us is to stand out there and shout, Look at me! I am awesome! And then, we don't tell each other this, but, but people don't look at us and tell us we're awesome all along and we start to have these issues inside that we, we deal with in a variety of ways and we struggle and we have problems and stuff. And I think there might be some wisdom in being a yes man, in settling for middle management, and in, in disappearing into oblivion in the eyes of the world. What am I talking about? I'm, I'm talking about a, a man who you know his name, but you probably know very little about. A man who we're going to look at today named Joseph. Play a little Bible trivia. How many words, spoken words of Joseph are recorded in Scripture? What's that? None, Diane says. Anyone want to Want to go up from none? I got none. I got one. I got one on the right one on the right. We're up. Anybody want to go two? Do I have two? A few? One, two, a few? And we got a soul to the lady on the left. None. Joseph has no spoken words in Scripture. He's only mentioned a couple times, very early on in the life of Jesus. He gets a brief reference later on when people are mocking Jesus. We don't know much about him at all. We know he was a carpenter. He was actually a tecton. I'm throwing that out there. It's a Greek word. You guys hear me speak Greek up here? Tecton. I do that on occasion so you assume I know what I'm talking about. That's why they teach us Greek in Hebrew in seminary. It has no purpose other than to try to... Tecton is an important word, actually. Tecton means a stonemason, carpenter, or woodworker, but of a very average variety. There's another type of tecton called an architecton. You ever hear the word archangel? Good old Gabriel. Architectons were higher-ups. They were master craftsmen. But Joseph wasn't an architecton. He was a tecton. He was an average, run-of-the-mill, ordinary carpenter, most likely, who lived in Nazareth, who spoke just zero words in Scripture, who only has a couple references, and then he disappears, and quite frankly, if he wasn't related to Jesus, we would never hear anything about him. This was a yes man. This was, this was middle management. This was mediocrity in the eyes of the world. But he was adored by Jesus. He was used mightily by God. And I would contend when we meet him in heaven, we will hear stories of a man who is joyful beyond comprehension for most people. So what I want to do today is I want to look at this average, ordinary, run-of-the-mill carpenter. And I want to see who he was, what he was like, and what we can learn from him about God and what God desires for us. 
So we're going to do that with the what is it, why is it, and how is it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. If that was a TV show, it would look like this. You guys ready? Joseph. Coming into Nazareth to the house of Mary and Joseph's uh, house of Mary's mom and dad. So picture him in his sandals coming in down the path to Nazareth, a little dust trail behind him, and he's just the man is just excited. You can see excitement on his face. So you got some background music playing, because Joseph is a happy man, and he's walking in, whistling and singing psalms of praise, and he sees Mary in the distance under the shade tree by the front entrance to her parents' house. You see, back in the day, people didn't date like they do now. They courted, and they courted in public. And any parent really likes that concept. So pay attention, kids. These, these, these betrothed people didn't get to be alone with each other. They had, they had to be in public, so they would often sit in a shade tree out in front of a house where they could be watched but not necessarily listened into. And Joseph was approaching, and he saw his betrothed, and he just thought to himself, I wish this betrothal period would end. I cannot wait until she's my wife, and we can live together and start our life together and have kids together. Oh, how I love Mary. But as he got closer, Mary's face looked a bit off. He knew something wasn't right. He didn't know what it was, but he got closer and closer, and he knew something was wrong. And Mary says, Joseph, I have to talk to you. He says, what's wrong? He said, sit down. So he sat down. She said, I'm going to tell you two things, but you have to promise not to leave until I finish both things. Joseph says, well, my goodness, what is it? She says, the first one is going to shock you, and the second one is going to shock you even more, but please listen, I promise it's the truth. She says, I'm pregnant. And Joseph just drops. What? He says, I'm pregnant. How? Who? What? This is Mary. He loves Mary so much. He couldn't believe this could ever. What is going on? And in his mind is that cacophony of noise that, that it feels like it's going to explode. And then she looks at him again and says, I'm still a virgin. She's an adulteress and a liar and a blasphemer. What? what? And he's looking at her and there's this weirdest thing. She has no look of shame or guilt. Her eyes should be down in the dirt, but she's looking right at him. He doesn't know what happened. He thought he knew her, but clearly he didn't know her. She's looking at him stoically and confidently, and he doesn't know what to say. So he stands up and he walks away. And he walks the long walk back home. He feels like he's going insane. He feels like his mind could explode. He's just staring ahead of him, but he's not seeing what's in front of him. How? His life is ruined. Why? What did she do? What did he do? How could this happen? God, why? And he goes home, and he's sitting there trying to figure out what to do. You see, he, he's a, a man who loves God, who fears God, who who wants to make decisions pleasing to God, and he knows what he can do. 
But he doesn't want Mary to suffer. Even though she's, she's ruined his life, he doesn't want to hurt her. So he resolves quietly to do what God's law commands him, understanding God's love. It's interesting, notice how he understands God's word and God's love to interpret the word through the lens of. So he resolves that, that he'll divorce her quietly, and he lays down in the dark of night to go to sleep, and he has trouble falling asleep, but when he does, he has the strangest dream ever. See, an angel appeared to him, and the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place, it tells us, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. But as the angel spoke that last word, Joseph sat up in bed. He got out of bed, and he began the long journey back to Nazareth. As he got there, there was no Mary under the shade trees. He had to walk up to the front door. Mary's dad answered. Can I speak to Mary, please? So she came out. She has no idea what Joseph's going to say. He said, sit down. I have to tell you two things this time. He says, what? He says, first, I'm sorry. I believe you. I know you're telling the truth. And second, I have to thank God for two gifts. One, for the baby in your womb. And the second, for the gift that he's given to me. And that gift is what I want to talk about today, the second gift. It's a gift that Joseph had that we can have too. It's a gift that, as we more fully understand who God is, God will develop in our hearts. It's a gift of humility. You see, Joseph was an incredibly humble man. Humble men are yes men. Humble men are content to disappear into oblivion so that God can take the forefront before them. Humble men and women and children are obedient joyfully. When God says do, they do. When God says don't, they don't. Even when it doesn't make sense, because they know who God is. So let's start with that. Let's start with humility. It says here in verse 19, her husband Joseph was a just man, unwilling to put her to shame. That word just, synonymous with righteous. It's a man who knew God and desired to obey God. Not in a pharisaical way, but in a a biblically appropriate way. Look at what happens when the the angel spoke to him here in in verse 21. What does Joseph do? He believes and he goes. Interestingly, there are three other visions from angels. If you go up to uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee. And in verse 14 it says, And he rose, and he took the child of his mother, and he fled. And you go to verse 19. When he heard that Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child of his mother, and go. And guess what Joseph did? He simply rose and goed. I've been taught it's when, I know. And then if you go a little deeper down, when they came closer, he was warned in a dream and withdrew to the district of Galilee where he was told to go. You see, humble people hear from God and they do what God says, no matter what it means. Think about Joseph. What would Joseph's life have been like? You married that harlot. That's not even your child. Well, she ain't a harlot and it's not my child. You're right. It's Jesus. Emmanuel. Joseph's name would have been thrown in the mud. Who knows what would have happened to his business? Who knows how his parents or friends or or relatives would have thought of him? But he didn't care. He was a humble man. He, He did what God told him to. So let's throw that out there. What is 
humility. What is biblically God-honoring humility? I'll give you a hint. It's not quietly keeping from tooting your horn in public and only doing it in private. What is biblical humility? Any ideas? a symptom of humility, absolutely. It's a harder question than, than it sounds on surface, isn't it? Uh, James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. I'll summarize those for you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I can tell you the antithesis of humility is pride. What, is, what does humility look like? Let me give you a, a living illustration from the Bible. Isaiah 6. It says here, starting in verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Isaiah sees him here. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook. At the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's called humility. Humility is gazing upon the awesomeness of God and allowing that to take the place of what you thought was the awesomeness of you. It's having a proper understanding of who God is and who you are. Joseph, well actually I'll give you the attitude. I wrote it here and I liked it and then I just forgot it. It takes us from a where are you God let me use you attitude to a here I am use me attitude proper understanding of who God is and who we are, quite simply. Why does God call us to humility? You ever, have, you ever uh, know of a parent, you will do what I say because I say it. I remember a conversation in my house once between a, a larger man and a, a younger girl of relation to me, and they were butting heads. Maybe both lacked humility in this conversation. I remember my father saying to my sister, if I say the sky is red, the sky is red. What color is the sky? She says, the sky is blue. <laughs> says, you're not listening. Whatever I say is true and it's what you'll do. If I say the sky is red, what color is the sky? The sky is blue. And on and on they went. They both lacked a bit of humility in that. But God's desire for us to be humble is not so that he says, if I say the sky is red, what color is it? Darn it, do what I say. That's not what God's talking about. God's humility is more like, if I say the stove is going to burn you, what should you do? Not touch the stove? Right. Why? Because you don't want me to get hurt? Exactly. I want you to listen to me and understand how much I love you so that you can live the life that I desire to give to you. Whatever I tell you is going to be for your good. So if I say the sky is red... What color should you say it is? You'd say red because you made the sky. And God says, right, now, now you're getting it. You see, God calls us to humility 
because he wants us to be joyful. The problem we have is this thing called pride. It's saying, God, yeah, I understand the premise of it, but you don't understand what I understand and, and what I need, we'll tell God. You see, we were made with God-given desires, significance, approval, acceptance, love, security. You realize God gave us those things. These aren't sinful things that have crept in over time. We were made with a need to be known, to be loved, to be approved, to have security, and to feel significance. We, we need to have a purpose with life or we go literally insane. And the world in its pride has, has come up with cheap fixes to take care of these. How do you find significance, approval, acceptance, love, and security? I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a fame-crazed culture. We lift people up onto these pedestals. We, we have strange, very strange reality TV. We have professional athletes who don't simply play a sport. They're some sort of icon that we're supposed to aspire after. I, I used to live down the street, not because I owned the house, I lived in a carriage house, remember, from, from uh, Michael Jordan. The man played basketball. He was a really good basketball player. But the culture turned him into some sort of icon so that the commercial said, I want to be like Mike. Why do you want to be like Mike? You know, Michael Jordan left his kids and his wife. He had some gambling issues. He wasn't the sweetest man on the face of the earth, but he was one heck of a basketball player. So, so why do you want to be like Mike? You know why? Because people looked at Mike and they said, wow, you have significance and purpose, and I adore you, and I want to be like you. And inside, there's this prideful part of us that just craves that. We, we want to be like Mike. We, want, we don't want to be a yes man. We want to be the man who tells people to say yes too. We want people to worship us. And it's a sickness that lives inside of us. And that's why we have struggle finding hope, peace, joy, and love. And God says to us, guys, guys, humble yourselves. God will humble the whole world at one point. You understand that? Every knee will bow before Jesus. Everybody, there's going to be no prideful people when Jesus comes back. Oh, yeah, put them up. Put them up, Jesus. You know, like, really? really? No. God, however, in our present time, gives the opportunity for all to humble themselves before him so they can live in a right relationship with him and have the joy that comes from that. You see, Joseph had some significance. Joseph had purpose. Joseph had approval. Joseph had love and security, but not in the way the world did, in a far superior way. God desires for us to be joyful people, but the problem we have is we start going after the world's trappings, don't we? Do we try to figure out what it is that God desires from us, or do we try to use God to get what we desire from Him? I remember sitting in an, an interview when I first came out of college. I was working in a beautiful department of a, a pharmaceutical company called Chargebacks. Still to this day, I have no idea what I did there for about nine months. I, I have no idea. But I showed up for my first day of work in a beautiful suit. And beautiful. When I got out of college as a gift, my dad took me to his suit maker and got me a few suits. My, my suit scale way out, outclassed my work position. But I remember coming in beautiful suit, real fancy coach suspenders, brand new wingtips. I mean, I was dressed to the nines. And I walked in there, and I assumed they'd probably be taking me to my office. I didn't expect a corner office, you know, right out of college, but an office with a window at least. I mean, my dad had a nice corner office, so it, 
Well, they put me in a conference room and told me my cubicle wasn't ready. Then they brought me a stack of paper off of a printer and they handed me a highlighter. Told me to highlight stuff that ends in 01. I'm like, are you kidding me? So there I sat highlighting. Well, I worked in that department for a number of months. Still have no idea why I was doing what I did, but I had a, a review. And I remember my boss said to me, you know, tell me where you see yourself in five years. And I had a, a in my head, I thought, it went real fast. I said, what if I just say to him, doing this? This is as far as I want to go. This is exactly what I feel like I should be doing. I am so content with this. I want to highlight from now for 45 more years, and I'm set. Good income, good job, security. He would, he would can me in a minute, right? But what if God simply made me to highlight? What, what if... What if I highlighted for the Lord and I did it well and I did it joy? You know, there are some people that God made to be highlighters. You ever meet someone who says, my kid, they're, they're average. Dead run average. Average height, average intelligence, average everything, average weight. They're just right spot middle on the bell curve. Everybody has above average kids. You ever notice that? You know, yeah. You ever meet someone who says, yeah, my kid is, they're pretty dumb, but you know, there are some dumb people. You, you never met those, but... You understand, humility leads to a desire not to live on the far right of the bell curve. It's rejoicing where God put us on the bell curve and working for the Lord's glory, not our own. See, I wanted out of the conference room with my highlighter because no one heard me yelling, hey, look at me. I had to get out amongst the big folks. Then you get out amongst the big folks and you start, you sit in the office. And then the conversation shifts. Well, you know, we're stuck down here on the third floor. We need to get up to the fifth floor because that's where the big wigs are. And you go up and they got nice carpet. And you think, okay, how do I... You're never content. Contentment comes not from just simply being a, a yes man and working in mediocrity. It comes from being a yes man to God and doing what he calls you to with, with a desire to glorify him. And as we do that, we find significance and approval and acceptance and love and security. You understand that? You're never going to find those things in a relationship with another person perfectly. Because we all have a little problem we'll talk about in a minute. You're never going to find them from your job. You're never going to find them from how people think of you. You're never going to find them from your kids. You're only going to find it fully in Christ. And that's why God calls us to humility. And Joseph understood that. Do you ever think about this as a little side note? Why did God choose Joseph to be Jesus' earthly father? You ever watch kids, little boys, around their dads? You know, one of my favorite pictures is when we first moved out here, I'm, I'm mowing the lawn, and I have two little kids, age one and a half and three and a half, behind me with their plastic lawn mowers. Little boys want to be like their dads. You ever notice that? Yeah, they, they, they try to dress like you, they try to talk like you, they, they try to look like you and, and do what you do. Last night, JJ's telling me he needs glasses. I said, why do you need glasses? Because you wear glasses. He wants to be like me. Then we grow up, and our dads aren't so cool anymore, but... Why did God choose Joseph to be Jesus' dad? Don't think for a minute Jesus came out, you know, hello, mother and father. You know, Jesus is too, and he's like, Daddy, sit down, let me speak to you of the things of the Lord. Grab me the scroll of Isaiah, and I will speak unto you. Now, he was too. He wore diapers. He, he, he did things. He got dirty. And I am sure that he would go out into the workshop where his tecton daddy worked, who was chiseling away. 
who, who, was, who was scraping, who was making things with his hand. And, and I envisioned Jesus coming out with his fake tools that Joseph made for him and, and hammering alongside Daddy. Yeah, and then he's three and he's talking to his mom. Mom, yeah, I want to be like Daddy. I want to, I want to be like Daddy. How can I be like Daddy? And he would dress like Joseph and he would talk like Joseph. And there's no coincidences in a sovereign God's world. And I think one of the reasons God chose Joseph is because he was such a humble man. And as Jesus grew up in perfection, and he learned, you know Jesus learned, and he grew in intelligence, and, and, and he had a, a human upbringing, his body changed, he learned things. I imagine some of those teachings, as he was a rabbi, that he, he spoke. And I wonder if as he spoke these teachings, go on and look through some of the things he said, and how they deal with humility. Letting not your left hand know what your right hand does. I, I came to serve. And, and think of these things. I wonder how often he had a picture of his, his earthly father working in the wood shop. Not saying, God, why do I have to be an average, ordinary, run-of-the-mill carpenter in Nazareth? Why can't I work in Sephora? Why can't I be making money? Why can't I be a master craftsman? I don't think Joseph said that. I think Joseph, day by day, rejoiced that God had entrusted him with the skill set to build, to put him in the place where he lived, to give him life day by day. And this, this little boy, who is far more than just a little boy, so I've explained to you, hopefully, what humility is. I have explained to you, hopefully, why humility is. God desires for us to have joy. Now, if I end there, we've wasted our time because I've got to give you the how it is. So you know what it is. You know why it is. So how do you do it? You just kind of go and be humble. Go forth and be humble. That'll be the benediction for today. Everybody good with that? Well, so how the heck are you supposed to be humble? What's the greatest barrier that prevents us from humility? Pride. What drives our pride? Is it the world around us? It certainly impacts it, right? Is it the television? What is it that, that causes our pride to hang in so tight and be such a danger to us? Sin. Jeremiah 17.9. It's this thing that resides in us. It's a thing called the heart. Not the literal heart thump thump, but it's figurative for the sin that resides in us. You know, the Amish go and they live in their communities trying to separate themselves from the world. What they're missing is the world's not the problem. We're our biggest enemy. It's sin that resides in us. So to combat pride, to live humbly so we can be joyful, we need to do a few things. First thing is you need to take your sick heart before God. You've got to recognize you've got a sick heart. Jesus came and he said, uh, I think I'm in Luke 4, 5, 6, somewhere in there. He's talking about how the healthy don't need a physician. He came to heal the sick. And the sickness is that, that sick heart, the sin that resides within. We need to take that sick heart before God. And that's called repentance and belief. God, I, I have a sick heart. I know I'm a prideful person who lacks humility. I know that I want your seat and I want you to serve me rather than me serve you. Help me, God. Heal my heart. Repentance and belief. And, and your heart is healed. Now, I don't know if you know this, but it's not perfected right away. Pride still resides in there a little bit. So what do we do then? Well, we need to allow God to remind us daily. You know what visual lethargy is? Imagine you have a new job, and, and you're driving to work that first day. Say you have a, a 25, 30-minute drive, and as you're driving, you notice all the things around you. You, know, you notice the, the buildings and the people and the trees and the curb of the road, and you're paying attention to everything. And then by, like, day 50 of work, you kind of get in your car, and you listen to the radio, and next thing you know, you're at work, and you don't even see anything going on around you. 
You know what I'm talking about? Anybody do that? It's called visual lethargy. Happens to everyone. You get, you get so used to things around you, you don't notice it anymore. Well, we have this condition called spiritual lethargy. We're able to wake up because God woke us up and forget who woke us up. We're going to go out into a world that God created that cannot happen just by chance and forget that God created it. We interact with people who are created by God in the image of God and just look at them as nuisances rather than just incredible miracles of God. We, we can go through our lives and we can forget God is even there, can't we? So how do we combat this? Take a look at Psalm 145. It says here, I'll read it to you. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. And it goes on and on. How do you combat our spiritual lethargy? You praise God. You hear from God. You tell people about God. You tell your kids about God. Day by day by day, you're reminded of it. Think about how Joseph combated spiritual lethargy. I think we need something to remember there, too. I, I think of Joseph on that, that day Jesus was born. Jesus was a unique baby, and Joseph knew that. Remember the angel said to him, your wife is conceived, it's from the Holy Spirit, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. It isn't just like the name has become meaningless to us. He's telling you, your, your son's name is God saves, and he's, he'll be called God with us. Joseph's knowing, okay, as he holds this baby. This is a very human baby. This is God in the flesh. I guarantee he never fully wrapped his mind around that, but every day, when he looked at that baby, who one day sat up, who one day started to walk, who one day spoke his first words, who one day followed him around, it was a bit of a humbling experience to be reminded day by day that God in the flesh was walking around, holding your hand, calling you his father for Joseph. That was a humbling daily reminder. We need that daily reminder. We don't have a baby walking around us anymore, do we? Who I am baby Jesus, hold my hand. But that's often how we treat him. Please choose me. Please let me be your Lord and Savior. We're like, well, well you're, you're a wimpy little baby. Well, the baby grew up, didn't he? And he died on a cross. And he rose from the dead. And you know where that baby is right now? It's a full-grown man sitting at the right hand of God. We don't look down. We look up. And there he sits, praying on our behalf. We need to hear from him through his word daily. We need to speak to him in prayer. We need to remember that he's coming back. But day by day, like Joseph was reminded and humbled by the task God had assigned him, we need to be reminded and humbled by looking up and remembering who it is that's coming back. We need to, you guys want a memory verse? If you can't memorize it, read it out of the Bible. This is the greatest Christmas verse you'll ever come across. Philippians chapter 2. This is, uh, if you haven't printed your Christmas cards, throw this one on there. You know what Philippians 2 says? Take verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, that little baby is the ultimate sign of God humbling himself. Not God bowing down before us to say, please choose me. But God knowing who we were and how we were separated from him and seeing the only way to reconcile us to himself was by becoming one of us on Christmas morning so that we might be reconciled to him. And that culminated on Easter Day. When we celebrate Christmas, that's what we need to be looking for. There's a lot of fun stuff around Christmas. A lot of prideful stuff around Christmas. What it has to do with a baby who was born to die so that we might live. You ever think of that? What's Christmas all about? About a baby who was born to die so that we might live. No, 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 it's not. Yeah, 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 it is. And when you understand that, and when you're remembered about, reminded about that day by day, then Christmas starts to become pretty awesome. Remember Philippians 2. Remember John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Remember God will never leave you nor forsake you. Remember God made you to live, live in a relationship with him. To meet all of your needs. You have to remind yourself day by day to combat spiritual lethargy. So, just realize that sounds like it was planned well. That Jeremiah passage. Your word was found and I ate it. And your word became to me a joy and a delight. Why does God call us to feast on his word? To meditate on his word? To talk about him? Deuteronomy 4 and 4. To talk about him when we rise up, when we lie down. Why? Because he wants us to be a joyful people. In our pride we say to God, well God, I can do this differently. God says, no you can't. He says, look at how much I love you. Look at what I've done for you. Look, look at the, the, the power that I have. Turn to me and be saved. And after you've turned, walk in obedience to me so you might have life and have it abundantly. And guys, that all starts with this thing called humility. It's a gift that Joseph had that God gave to him. It's a gift that God desires to give to every one of us if we truly want to receive it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, Joseph. I look forward to one day meeting him. Uh, oh, the, the stories Joseph must have to tell. I, I just uh, think of how much fun it would be to, to sit down with him and, and hear stories of, of Jesus growing up. Uh, truly comical stories at time, I imagine, to know what our Lord and Savior was like growing up. And I think how awesome that might be one day to be in heaven, hearing stories from Joseph, listening to his grown son who is God, right beside us laughing an incredibly deep, fully joyful belly laugh at this man who, who he was chosen to be his earthly father to care for this precious gift. God, I thank you for the humility of Joseph. I thank you for the fact that Joseph disappeared into a bit player in the eyes of the world so that you would take the forefront. I thank you for the fact that he was a living example of what it meant to decrease so that you might increase. God, this is a difficult thing to ask for all of us, but I pray we would lay our pride before you and that we would ask you to destroy it and allow you to use our lives for your glory in your will, not ours. 
I pray that if you, you lift us up to the heights that the world adores, that you would humble us along the way so we might never be a person who, who feasts on the praise of man, but rather always points to you. I pray we might not seek it on our own, but only approach it cautiously if it is your will. And at the same time, I pray if in the eyes of the world you've called us to a life of apparent mediocrity, and insignificance, if we're often overlooked and underappreciated, if we're mocked or ridiculed or people tend to, to pick on us rather than want to be like us, that as we walk in your will in those ways, you might encourage us along. The reality, though, is we'll probably live somewhere in the middle in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of you, Father, we know that we are the most significant thing in the world, not in ourselves, but in people, created in your image to live in an eternal relationship with you. I pray, God, we find our significance in a humble heart, understanding who you are, who we were, and who you have made us through Christ. Father, I thank you for the model of humility you show us in coming down from the perfections on high to become one of us, to live in a sin-infected world so that we might be able to have your righteousness put upon us as you took our sin upon yourself. Father, this Christmas, I pray you would help us to grow more fully into a humble people, that you would help us to be a righteous and just person like Joseph, that you would help us to not seek our will and to get vengeance for those who have wronged us, but to seek your will and show them the love that you have for them. In all of these things we pray in the precious and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.